Uh, but uh, this morning's text is from Psalm chapter 2. So if you got your Bible, uh, you can turn along uh, with me there to Psalm chapter 2. That's where we're going to hang out most of our time this morning. So I'll read from there. Psalm chapter 2, I've got the NAS. It's okay if you've got a different version. But Psalm chapter 2, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their feathers apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain." I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that it gives us to cling on to in the midst of crazy days. We trust you. We look to you. Would you speak? We pray, Jesus, that you might be honored and glorified. Pray it in your name. Amen. So we can't pinpoint the exact moment or circumstances here around Psalm chapter 2. Uh, we don't think this is a Psalm of David, or at least we don't have the, the subtitles here for it. Uh, but it's certainly a moment, uh, if we're honest, it's, it's a familiar moment in Israel's uh, history, right? Where they are, again, surrounded by enemies who are gathering about them. Uh, I mean, we could go through, just march through Israel's history, right? Uh, and there's just moment after moment after moment that are similar to these kinds of events here that we see in Psalm chapter 2, whether you go back to to the very beginning, to Exodus, and Pharaoh and his armies have them hemmed in, hemmed in against the Red Sea, and they think, oh no, we're doomed. Or David, and all the times, where, the countless times where he is surrounded by enemies and in hiding, or we could go to Elijah or to Elisha, we could go to Jehoshaphat, we could go to just countless Old Testament story and time in their history and events where they're that would look very similar here to Psalm chapter two. But let's not be mistaken, this is not just an Israel thing. This is not just an old covenant thing. This is a familiar thing for God's people throughout all history as well. So there's much that we can relate to here in this Psalm as well, right? 
from, from the very first pages, from the very beginning of, of our history, from creation to fall, we we're quickly into the curses of that fall. And what do we see? It's going to be enmity, hostility. It's going to be a battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, right? That's, that's, that's just setting the table for all of redemption history right there in the first chapter or two of your Bible. So we too, as believers, can expect warfare or, or similar circumstances to come from time to time. What, what grabs me, though, here about this as we see the nations in an uproar, we, we see plotting, we see scheming, we see ganging up together the kings of the earth, taking their stand, taking counsel together. We see these things, but we see ultimately the, the purpose behind it here. Why is this such a familiar occurrence for Israel, for, for all of redemption history? Wherever God is at work, whatever God is doing, we should expect circumstances like these to arise once in a while. Why? Here's the, the crystal clear reason in, in a muddy, hard world and day and age in which we live in, because there will always be those who are standing against God. There will always be those who are rebelling against him, against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let's, let's tear off these chains. We don't want to be ruled by God. We want to rule ourselves. We won't submit to him. So here we are, Psalm 2, talking about Israel, but we can identify very well with these things. That's, that's the reason, the, the primary thing going on in our world. Let's not lose sight of it. It's not ultimately, primarily politics and all of these things. It is, first and foremost, why is there a war? Why is there a battle going on? Because there are two sides. And either you're following God or you're not. And there will always be those who want to not follow him, who won't submit to him, whose battle cry will be throw off the chains. We won't follow and serve him. So here we are, Psalm chapter 2. Again, familiar, familiar things. How does God respond? That's ultimately where we're going to look this morning. How does he respond to this? Uh, Eric had a great sermon last week along some, some similar lines. Uh, he preached from, from Isaiah, he preached from Job, from Psalm 139. So there's certainly some, some similar tracks to us. He said his sermon last week was a, a who is sermon. Who is God in these things? And, and the sermon this morning will go again right down those same lines. Who is our Lord? How does he react uh, to the battles, to the nations, to their plots, to their schemes. And it's, it's very uh, simple, the response here in Psalm 2. First off, we see, he who sits in heaven, verse 4, what's his first response? This isn't, isn't quite the politically correct response, right? He laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He's not bothered. He's not surprised one bit. Uh, Eric, when he went to Isaiah 40, he gave the illustration of grasshoppers, right? 
the one who reigns over all the earth uh, and everybody on the earth. They're, they're like grasshoppers to him. And Eric had this line about how, you know, here in Colorado, walking the trails or running, no grasshopper has ever pushed him off the trail or pushed him off the path. I'm not sure if you remember that. Uh, at least that's how he preached it at East on Sunday night. But I, I love that line and it, and it grabbed me and it, it's just had me thinking along those lines this week. God is not moved. He's not bothered. His blood pressure has not risen, you know, a tenth of a degree as he sees all of the things that are going on around us. It makes me think, how many of you are familiar with narwhals or narwhales? Anybody here? Yeah? I'm familiar with them a little bit, uh, but, but uh, here's, here's the deal. Supposedly, and you can hear me joking a little bit here. Supposedly, narwhals are these spotted whale-type creatures. Supposedly, they live in, uh, in Greenland and, and all those, those places where no one's ever seen them. But who's ever been to Greenland to see narwhals, right? Is that you? Have you seen them? No, I haven't. Uh, supposedly, the, the ridiculous thing, they have this left canine overgrown tooth that comes out of their head and looks like what? A unicorn horn, right? So all of my supposedly here's they're, they're, they're mostly joking, mostly joking. But I, I don't know about you, I've become convinced that narwhals are a conspiracy. Um, I, I, if you don't know my family, I have three daughters. So I'm outnumbered all day long, four females to one, my wife and, and three kids. But uh, narwhals were just never a thing in my world growing up. No kids cared about narwhals. We didn't talk about them, we didn't play with narwhals, blah, 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 right? They, I just, I never heard of them. But now, how many of you have made the mistake of walking into like the toy section of a store in the last year or two? Anybody? Anybody here done that? No? One person. Well, there's like two with me. Okay, good. If you haven't, here's the deal. There's like a narwhal section in every toy area now. Uh, and they're right, they're sectioned right in there with fairies and unicorns. And it, it's all just for me, it's all too convenient, right? It feels like the unicorn marketers got together with the dolphin marketers and were like, hey, I know how we can make some more money here. Let's stick a unicorn horn on that fish and sell that to little girls everywhere. And, and so it's, it's all over the place the last year or two. You can't enter the toy section without narwhals everywhere. You can't watch a kid's episode of a show. They've all got narwhal episodes. And I have just decided this is all too convenient. I've never seen a narwhal before. I'm not sure they exist. And I have declared a one-man war against narwhals. So that's, that's where I am in life right now. As, as I think that's, that's my job as the dad in the family, right? I'm surrounded. I'm outnumbered. I've got to push back here. So, you know, my daughters, as they're narwhal stuffed animals, they're, they're constantly getting chucked around the house as I wage battle against them. Uh, if I'm in a toy section with my kids, you know, I'm, and I see the narwhals, I'm putting other toys in front of them and hiding them. I, I'm pushing back. I am waging this one-man war against narwhals. But the narwhals are fighting back, at least according to my kids anyway. They have declared me a conspiracy as well, and we wage this, this daily battle back and forth. It's Papa versus the narwhals. But I will tell you, 
because they're a conspiracy, because they, I've declared them fake news in my house, uh, I'm not bothered in the least by the narwhal's affronts to my existence. Try, they can do whatever they want. I'm not bothered in the least. I go right on living my day. They're, they're having narwhal conventions. They're building armies against me. All of this is going on in my house right now and it doesn't keep me awake for one minute at night. I'm not bothered. That's God here. In fact, he laughs. He, he, he scoffs uh, in a sense. God here is almost nanny nanny boo-booing these nations and their uproars and their stuff. And he goes even further than the laughter and the scoffing. He goes to anger, right? Do you have room in your theology? This isn't very politically correct, as we said earlier, for a God who is aroused to anger at the rebelliousness of man. Uh, and, and he's not hateful. It's, there's room for nuance here, right, in the world in which we live. It's not one side or the other. He's a good God, but a good God hates and abhors what is evil. And he's patient, and he's gracious. The, 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 the miraculous thing is that he is so patient as we look through human history with the rebellion of man, right? He's, he's patient, but he is aroused here. Then he will speak to them in his anger, terrify them in his fury. And he breaks out maybe the... the the mom or the dad tone, any kids here know the mom or dad tone when they're done with your shenanigans and it's time to behave because watch out, here comes the tone. Here he is, he speaks the, to them in his fury and here's his pronouncement, here's his message. As for me, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. That is the overarching message that he has here. And what a thing for Israel in, in whatever times these are, uh, as the psalmist recounts. Maybe he's looking back to the days of David or, or whoever here. But here's the message for the people of Israel as they are surrounded, as the nations are raging, as things look bleak. It's, I've got my king. And I've put him there. I've installed him he is sitting on the throne in Zion. And I guess the first thing I want to say about this is, this to me is astounding grace that this is God's answer. If you think back to Israel's history and the whole idea of a king, an earthly king for them, where, where did that start? Do you remember? It starts back with, with Samuel uh, and we're going from the judges period and we're ending that. And what's the deal with this whole king thing? Israel finally decides we want an earthly king like all the nations around us, right? And Samuel is offended by this. And God speaks to him and says, hey, Samuel, ultimately it's not an affront against you. It's an affront against me. They're rejecting me as their king, and they want an earthly king instead. And so God gives them an earthly king. We know the first one is Saul, and we know how that goes. But if you follow Israel's 
history, it's a roller coaster with kings, right? And as you go through from one king to the next, the question becomes, what kind of king is this man? Who is this king? And they have some good ones sprinkled in. And they have many bad kings, right? Kings who, who promote the worship of, of false gods and idols and things like that. Once in a while, they have the king who, who leads them back to, to repentance and, and to worship God and, and bring back the covenant and the law and all these things, right? But it, it's this crazy roller coaster just following them. And as the, the king goes, oftentimes, the nation goes with it for them. And yet here... <clears throat> at maybe this, this high point in their history, as the psalmist ponders these things here, in God's grace, he's given them from time to time good kings. He's given them kings who, who are tied in closely with follow God, who want to please him, who want to worship him, even if this kingship idea is ultimately a rejection of God himself in his sheer grace, God has given them a king. And he has installed him on his holy mountain, Zion. There's all kinds of good stuff we could talk about there, about Jerusalem and even just the, the setting that God has placed them in. It, it took David so long to conquer and win Jerusalem and what a setting it was for, for defense and all of the things that are there in Jerusalem that God has given them in this city on this mountain where God has installed his king. If you remember even back to, to AD 70 to, to when Rome is coming after them and ultimately destroys Jerusalem completely, it took Rome five months to break through the walls and take out Jerusalem. And yet here is God in his grace giving them a king, placing him in Jerusalem to, to rule them and rule for them. But we see here we've got this, this little bit of an interchange. We get to see kind of this, this conversation it shifts in verses 7 to 9, and these are the words of this king. This is what God has told him and shared with him what this is all about. So we get to see a little bit of this conversation. He's passing on the things that God has given and entrusted to him, and it's glorious. That This king is not just any king, but he would be called son he said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. What fellowship, what intimacy for, for a king of man, for a king of Israel to be called God's son. We know that, that, that relationship, we know it can be a broken relationship today, but, but here it's this picture of, of closeness of how they are on the same page that God would call this king a son. Today I have begotten you. And we know if you look back to the promises given to, to David, this is this is direct answer to that, right? Uh, I, I will give you, David, a seed, an heir, and he will, he will come and he will reign on the throne forever, and he will be my son, and I will be a father to him. So this goes all the way back to, to there and to those promises, I think. 
But it's even more than just that relationship. Here's what it means. How does God treat his son? Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance. The very ends of the earth as your possession. We, we know earthly terms. Uh, this has been going on for centuries and thousands of years. Fathers want to leave something behind for their sons. They want to leave a legacy behind. They want to give good gifts to them. And here's the key thing of this father-son relationship. Here's what it means for this king of Israel. It means, oh yes, king, oh yes, my son, I have an inheritance for you. And all you have to do is ask. All you have to do is, is come to me and ask, and I'm ready, and I'm willing to give this inheritance. And what is the inheritance? It is victory. As you are surrounded by these nations and these enemies and all this stuff, this inheritance is you will break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like earthenware. Earthenware, in my mind, is not uh, a very strong substance. Uh, plates, dishes, any little drop, six inches, a foot, any little thing off of the table, and they're shattered so easily, right? When I was a kid growing up, I had two older brothers, and I guess we weren't necessarily gentle all the time with our dishes, uh, because I can, I can vividly remember it. My two older brothers are now out of the house. This is convenient because I get to blame them in this story. But they're out of the house, and we were living in New York, and uh, we had this bush in the backyard, and it was growing, and it was overtaking, like, the entire backyard. It was just one of those kinds of bushes. So one day, my dad, or maybe it was several days, my dad and I are out attacking this bush and trying to destroy it. And as we get further and further into the bush, what do we find? All kinds of broken plates, dishes, shattered earthenware. This bush has become the hiding spot uh, for, for uh, I guess, my brothers and I. I don't remember ever throwing any broken dishes in there, so I get to blame my two older brothers here, right? But, huh? Yes, yes, my dad will pass it on, he says. But here's the inheritance. You're going to shatter them like nothing. You will break them. You will be victorious. You will conquer. That's the inheritance God has for this king. For, for a nation surrounded by enemies, coalitions ganging up against them. This is glorious news. The psalmist then concludes in the last few verses, 10 through 12, that here's, here's what this means. Well, it depends on which side you're on. For some, these words are a great warning. O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. For some, these words should terrify them and keep them awake at night. God is, has his king, and he's going to win. You won't be able to defeat him. 
So for some, this is a, a strong warning. For others, this is the news they have been waiting for as they live in these circumstances. This is the greatest news they could possibly hear from the Lord. I have my king on Zion. He's going to win. He will be victorious. No one will stop his kingdom. It will never end. He'll reign forever. It will conquer and fill and grow so that it hits every tribe and tongue and nation. And you hear where I'm going with this, right? Obviously, this is not just an Israel thing. This is much better than just that. Again, back to that question. Why? Why in his grace would God give in to their request for a human king? Why would he do that? Sometimes God, God just gives us what we want, right? And we get the results of what we want. And again, we see that lived out in their history. The ups, the downs, the highs, the lows, the good kings, the bad kings. And they experience all of that. But the biggest reason I think that God would give them a king and inspire the psalmist to write these words for them is that someday as it's all crashing down, as they have been conquered again and again and again, as they wait, as they long, as they, they've hoped, where is this king coming? When will God keep his promises Someday, the king, the one the psalm ultimately pointed to, he would come. He would come. The seed of the woman would come. The greater son of David would come, and, and he would show up, and he would proclaim hope to them that they've never heard before, the good news that the kingdom of God, because I'm here is in your very midst. Someday he would arise, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this, and it is still true today, friends. We need a strong king. We long for a king who will keep his promises. We, we hope for a wise king we want, we, we long for a selfless king who came to serve, not to be served, but to lay his life down. We, all of this is a picture and a pointer to that king. And the good news, friends, is we have that king today. Right now, we have that king. God has given us this great gift 
this gift of his only begotten son, and he has made him both Lord and King over all of the universe, and he rules and he reigns. He's given him these promises from Psalm 2. The Father has given these promises to his son, Ask of me, son, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. He will not break his promises to his son. He will keep them and uphold them. We have, friends, that king, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords, and he rules and he reigns on the throne now, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and he has already won the decisive blow, and he is now trampling underfoot his enemies, so that at the name of Jesus, at the end of all things, as we sang, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess of those who are in heaven and on the earth and those under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We have, brothers and sisters, that king. Let the nations rage. Let them do their thing. They will always do that. We have enemies Though things don't always look good uh, or encouraging, depending on the day or the moment or the news or the this or the that, we have a sure king. He will win. The Father will keep his promises to him. That's our hope. That's our trust today. Can you believe that? Can you cling to that can we live in light of that worshiping that that's the right response right from from psalm 2 worship the lord with reverence rejoice he tells them in the the midst of all these enemies and all these people around them rejoice with trembling pay homage to the son how blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's do that today, in these days. Let's take refuge in him. Dave, would you come and pray for us to that end?